This week in the Dan Cave, how's the Mariners' rebuild going? Too many good things, frankly, to squeeze into one podcast, but I'll do a rebuild status check today. Speaking of Mariners' rebuild, who do you think is smarter, me or John Heyman? I'll take on the MLB Network analyst with facts and stuff. A lot of bad and ugly from the Seahawks' second preseason game, but we'll focus on the good as we get set for week three. And I'll give you three major rule changes I'd love to see the NFL make yesterday if possible. My take on the Seattle Dragons, the new XFL's team name and logo, and what they have to do to succeed here in Seattle. And was I right about the Cougs' QB situation? Looks that way. Get into the Dan Cave, because it's kind of cold and wet and rainy out there. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vies. Ah, man, that is so good. For those of you who have listened before, you know what a big Alter Bridge fan I am. Today, new single came out, Take the Crown, from their record, Walk the Sky, which will be out uh, six days after my birthday in October, by the way. Um, Great song. It's got a little bit of a different sound to it. Some surprises built in, but it's got all the things that are great about Alter Bridge. Uh, Miles kicking ass on vocals and Tremonti with a long outro at the end, kind of a little surprise with some some bluesy things in there. So uh, if you haven't checked out Alter Bridge, if you like that kind of sounding music, please do. Do yourself a favor. You will thank me. Uh, we've got some breaking news. Breaking news I got to get to. Uh, yeah, this just in, the Mariners rebuild, step back, whatever you want to call it, it's working. Things are happening. Really cool things are happening. And actually, this isn't breaking news. If you've been paying attention, you would know this. And those of you who I interact with on Twitter, most of you do know this. And um, <laughs> over the last few weeks, it's been kind of fun to bond with uh, people in my Twitter universe who are on the, on the same page as I am over the people who still don't get it. And we'll get to that in just a second. But I did I wanted to do kind of a kind of a take the pulse of the Mariners rebuild because one thing that that people like to hang their hat on and point out is that uh you know, it's easy whichever side of the argument you take, any argument, any debate, it's easy to cherry pick and take little pieces of information and shape it to fit your argument. For example, if you don't believe in the Mariners' rebuild, it would be really easy to take Malik Smith's numbers this year, compare him to what he did in Tampa Bay last year, and say, see, Mariners didn't get much, didn't get enough in the Mike Zanino trade. This is a bad trade. Jerry Depoto doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, Malik Smith is a bust. You could have done that with Justice Sheffield earlier this season when he was really struggling in AAA, looking like a shell of his former self when he was one of the top prospects on all the major lists in baseball. Those things are easy. And sample size can be your friend if you're trying to do that, if you're trying to cherry pick. You could say, you know, yeah, you were all on the Jared Kelnick train early in the season, but now he's run into a brick wall or the rookie wall or whatever. Or this guy had a good first half, but look what he's doing in the second half. This is just the tip of the iceberg, but I wanted to just touch on, let's see, what do I have here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I just picked eight eight guys today uh, who are keys to this rebuild, eight of the top prospects in the Mariners system, just to show you what they're doing now and in the last week or two in context of what they've done all season long. And this is also just an effort by me, for those of you who listen and don't dive into the minor league stats and don't take the time to really dig into the rebuild and look at all these prospects on a regular basis. I don't expect you to, but that's what I'm here for. Do it for you. Let's start with Logan Gilbert, last year's first round draft pick, starting pitcher, 22 years old, his first full season in pro ball. Remember after he was drafted last June, he came down with mono, 
was never able to pitch in Everett as the team had planned. He's He's been at three levels this year. Started at low A West Virginia, then was promoted to Modesto, and then about a month ago was promoted to double A Arkansas. So he's pitching in double A at the age of 22. So you would think as he would move up levels and also get to the end of the season, he's pitched over 120 innings now, maybe fatigue would set in. Maybe the league would start to catch up with him because the average age is higher. You have more advanced hitters. So first his season stats, he's 10-5 and five with a 1.95 ERA in 124 innings pitched. He's only walked 30 batters. He's struck out 154. His batting average against is 195. That's his entire season. But in the last week alone, and he was just named the Texas League Pitcher of the Week. And again, this is a double A. 11 innings pitched, zero runs allowed, six hits, four walks, 16 strikeouts. Logan Gilbert is starting to profile as a, not just a front of the rotation starter, but a potential ace. And whenever we talk about one of these rebuilds, and we're going to continue to talk about it, at some point, it it has to be necessary to take the next step, to be able to win divisions and challenge for World Series. Got to have an ace. Acquiring them is hard. It's better to develop them. And it looks like the Mariners may have found themselves a potential ace in Logan Gilbert. Let's check in on Jared Kelnick, who's also advanced three levels this year. Uh, 20 years old. Just recently 20, by the way. So you would expect him to struggle in double A as well. One of the younger players at that level. Uh, He's only been up for two weeks. Got off to a slow start, but he's four for his last eight. So now in his first 10 games in double A, his slash line, 263, 349, 447. That's a solid slash line. If you were to tell me that was his season-long slash line in double A at the age of 20, I would tell you that he's going to be in AAA next year and probably make his debut with the Mariners. Julio Rodriguez, we talked about him last week. We've been talking about him a lot lately because he was just promoted to high A Modesto. First year stateside, played in the Dominican League last year. 18 years old, youngest player in the Cal League. In his first five games, you talk about not being phased by a level. First five games in the Cal League, nine hits and 16 at-bats, only struck out once, walked twice. He has a two doubles and a triple, a home run already. His slash line, I'm not making this up, 563, 588, and he's slugging 1,000. You would expect a kid that young to struggle in high A out of the gate. Certainly Julio Rodriguez is not doing that. George Kirby, this year's first-round draft pick, Unlike Logan Gilbert from last year, didn't come down with mono, was able to pitch in Everett. They've been careful with his innings. Here's what he's done so far in Everett. 20 innings pitched, 5 runs, 0 walks, 23 strikeouts. I'll say it again. 0 walks. What you like to see out of draft picks and young players is that their skill set translates from one level to the next. Kirby... When he was drafted, the talk was really con- controls the strike zone. Great walk to strikeout ratio. Doesn't walk a lot of guys. He's continued that into his first year in pro ball. And uh, Jason Churchill continues to say that Kirby was an absolute steal at the 20th pick. Brandon Williamson, their second round pick. There were questions about him coming out of TCU because he had had some hip issues. He's thrown 12 innings in Everett. Only walked 5 and struck out 20. Nice start for Williamson. Let's talk about Juan Ten. You remember that name? Does that stick in your head a little bit? Juan Ten was the prospect we got back from the New York Yankees in the Edwin Encarnacion deal. He started out as a Mariner farmhand. Went to the Yankees in the Nick Rumbelow trade two years ago. And we took him back. Why did we take him back? Because they saw the development since they traded him away. Starting pitching candidate, 19 years old. He spent a little time in the Arizona League, spent a little time at Everett. Made his debut at West Virginia last year at the age of 19 in the Sally League. Six innings pitched, three hits, one run, 
only one walk, six strikeouts. And if you saw any of the video, and if you really care about this kind of stuff, you have to follow MILB or uh, uh, Mariners Miners on Twitter and Instagram. And they post video highlights of these guys on a nightly basis. And the breaking stuff, the overhand curveball, the 12 6 curveball, and the slider that 10 showed in getting some of these strikeouts and missing bats, just absolutely filthy stuff. Get excited about Juan 10. Noel V. Marte, just 17 years old, tearing up the DSL. This could be next year's Julio Rodriguez. That he's been so dominant in the DSL this year, we could see him stateside as soon as next year. Shortstop, even though he's six foot three, uh, some feel he's going to outgrow the position and could ultimately end up at third base or in the outfield. Um, but he's hitting 302, 367, 492 for the year. And he's really turned it on of late in his last 10 games. Marte's hitting 476 with three home runs, six walks, three strikeouts. He's walking more than he's striking out. He's also stole five bases. He is a um, a true five-tool talent, outstanding athlete. Remember that name because he's going to start. He may show up next year. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Sometimes the top 100 lists that you see, Baseball America, Fangraphs, MLB Network, MLB Pipeline, um, they don't often list guys in the DSL, but Marte may start to pop up on some of those top 100 lists. And then I've already mentioned Justice Sheffield. Let's talk about him again, though, because since he went to Arkansas and made a mechanical adjustment, so this isn't just about a guy going down a level and facing less skilled hitters. This is about a guy making a mechanical adjustment to become more consistent in the strike zone and and get a better feel for his pitches and regain some of his command that made him a top 20 prospect in all of baseball. Since going to Arkansas in 12 starts, 5-3 and three with a 2.19 ERA, 78 innings pitched, only 62 hits allowed, 18 walks, 85 strikeouts. His batting average against is 218. He is being called up, and he will start tomorrow night for the Mariners against the Blue Jays. He had one appearance earlier in the season, uh, piggybacking one of those shortened Yusei Kikuchi starts. Kikuchi is being skipped tomorrow night. This was a planned thing, coming off the dominant outing in Toronto on Sunday. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to see if Sheffield can carry over and take what he's done at Arkansas and uh, do it for the Mariners on Friday. Still a lot of questions about long-term what his role is going to be. Is he a guy that projects as a two or a three as a starting pitcher? Are his secondary offerings enough? Is the velocity good enough? Uh, or ultimately, is he going to be a dynamic reliever? Uh, we should see a little bit more um, on Friday. And I mentioned it at, in the intro, and I and I bring it up, and, and one of the reasons I like to do this is j- there's just, it's it's crazy to me. The, the evidence has been continuing to mount all season long. We've talked about it on this podcast. It's going to be a consistent topic on this podcast. I may talk about the Mariners' rebuild every single week for the next year and a half because it's a process that excites me, and it should excite you, and as I said, if you don't have the time or are motivated enough to dig into this stuff, I'll do it for you. Just listen to the Dan Cave, and we'll track this stuff over the next year, year and a half. And and we're either, at the end of it, when it crests, we're either going to get to where we're talking about the Mariners being back in contention, legitimate contention with a young roster and a stacked farm system, or we're going to talk about a front office that didn't get it done and then changes will be necessary at that time. But right now, the evidence is so overwhelming that this is working that it boggles my mind that people still don't get it. It's one thing to not agree with it and to stand by your argument that I think they should have done it another way. Tried to get a couple veterans, made a couple of trades, stayed in contention, maybe taken a shot at the wild card this year. If that's your argument and you believe in it and you have some specific points you want to make to back it up, then fine, I'm cool with that. I'll debate you all day long. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, the guy on Twitter that I had a really, really nice, healthy debate with. 
Didn't change his mind, didn't change my mind, but it was a really good debate. Usually that doesn't happen. It's more along the lines of, <laughs> oh man, I got into this guy, into it with this guy just the other day, uh, who tried to make the argument. Someone had tweeted, uh, because Jared Kelnick uh, and Mariner Miners had um, posted an update of the game from that night in Arkansas when Justin Dunn, who I didn't even list here, who's been consistently outstanding all year long, had another great start. Jared Kelnick had a big game, had a couple extra base hits. And someone had retweeted that and said, uh, here's the future of the Mariners rebuild. We're going to see these guys in the big league roster in a year or two. Can't wait. And somebody else jumped in to that thread and said, I hope not. I hope they're not part of this or it's a failure. Vogelbach is, is the only guy that I still want to see around. So a bunch of us jumped in on that. Like he, he was essentially saying Daniel Vogelbach is a better prospect than Jared Kelenic. Um, I I won't get too deep into this because it was kind of ridiculous and the guy ended up blocking me because he didn't have a counter argument and he didn't like being picked on. But um, his, his first argument when he was trying to justify his stance was uh, that Vogelbach had finished second in the AAA home run derby last year and was selected to the All-Star game this year. Um and that he, uh, all you had to do to know he was a great prospect and a better prospect than Kelnick was to watch his body control and the way he carries himself in the minor. It, I don't even, I've already spent too much time on it. Guys like that are, they're out there. They're all over. But when it comes from an MLB network insider, a guy who's been a national baseball writer, a well-known national baseball writer for decades who has broken major trade news, who was considered one of the premier analysts of the sport in the nation. John Heyman tweeted this two days ago. One of these days, the Mariners' plan may be revealed. But for now... And admittedly from a distance, they look like they're engaged in all-time roster churning and wheel spinning. No playoffs in two, since 2001. Many new plans since then. But when does the winning begin? This is John Heyman. If he had tweeted this in February or March, great. And in fact, when I saw this, I checked to make sure it wasn't somebody liking or retweeting it, trying to make the point that, hey, look, now there's a plan. Let's dissect this for a second. The first line, I have it in bold. One of these days, the Mariners' plan may be revealed. Is it a mystery? Jerry Depoto, the general manager of the Mariners, has said repeatedly since January, he has laid out word for word exactly what the plan is. And he's even divulged the timeline. I've disagreed with him on that. We've talked about that here. He has said, we saw that we couldn't compete as constructed the way we were last year with Houston and the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Indians. So we had to step back, his words, move some assets, build our farm system, acquire young controllable talent that would crest in a year or two and give us the ability and the financial flexibility to then be a contender long-term. And he even specifically said, 2019 at the major league level is going to hurt. 2020, by the second half of 2020, we're going to be really interesting, his words, because that's when some of these prospects are going to start coming up getting their first taste of big league baseball, by 2021, they expect to be competitive. Every single trade he's made along the way, he's reiterated that plan. Patiently, calmly, not getting defensive, believing in it 100%. Where has John Heyman been? Like, I'm literally running my hands through my hair right now and kind of pulling on it. Like, I can't believe this guy said that. 
We talked two weeks ago about if you're only focusing on what's happening on the 25-man roster at the big league level with the Mariners and judging the rebuild on that, then you've thrown down your gun. You're unarmed. You, you, you disqualify yourself from being able to make an argument. This is John Heyman. One of these days, the Mariners' plan may be revealed. The other thing he says is no playoffs since 2001, many plans since then. Many new plans since then. He's been covering baseball for 20 years. Since 2001, there's only been one plan. Try to tinker with the roster every single year to stay good, to, to make a run at the playoffs. Every year, they acquire players. They went out and got Beltre and Sexton. They went and, and traded for Cliff Lee when Zarenchik took over. So Bavese didn't try to rebuild. Zarenchik didn't try to rebuild. Yeah, he acquired some younger players. He drafted Ackley, traded for Jesus Montero and Justin Smoke. But you don't trade for Cliff Lee and sign Sean Figgins in free agency if you're trying to rebuild. So there's from 2001 to 2018, there was one plan. It's 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 just beyond me. Um, I'm going to give you a name you've never heard before, most likely. Our prospect of the week this week, Patrick Frick. And these are the guys that I look looking at sometimes. They don't come with the big pedigree. They don't come with the huge upside. They're not five-tool guys, but these are the kind of guys that have a skill set that can play and that can carry from one level to the next. And this is the kind of guy that you may not hear a lot about. He's not going to pop up on top 20 or top 30 lists. And then three years from now, he could be your your utility player on your 25-man roster. He was a Mariners 14th rounder this year out of Wake Forest. And I remember talking about him after the draft. Uh, and what caught my eye is that he had more walks than strikeouts his last two years at Wake Forest. You talk about a guy with discipline and, and strike zone awareness. More walks and strikeouts is incredibly rare. And he's carried that same skill set into Everett with him. He has 36 walks to 34 strikeouts. He's hitting 309, his full slash line, 309, 435, 372. I know, that slugging percentage is low. He has zero home runs. He's not going to hit for power. He's not like Donnie Walton or Tim Lopes, a couple other utility guys that I like in the system. Lopes now, of course, up with the Mariners. And we'll talk about him in, in depth in a coming episode. This guy's not going to hit home runs. No pop in the bat at all. But he's played second, third, and short throughout the season. And in his last 10 games, he's hitting 447. So the guy can really get on base. He can hit. And he can play every position in the infield. So uh, another name to keep your ear on or your eyes on. Over the next couple of years, Patrick Frick. And I would just love to see him someday become a big leader because that last name really lends itself to a lot of fun catchphrases and and sayings, and um, and that could be really awesome. Let's go around the horn with some other Mariner stuff, some thoughts and news. Braden Bishop and Mitch Hanniger are both really close to returning to the club. Uh, Bishop, of course, had the lacerated spleen. Mitch Hanniger, the ruptured testicle. Those injuries happened about a week apart. Really serious injuries and a, and a hard road back for both these guys. Bishop lost a lot of weight, really couldn't exercise at all. Hanniger had a couple of setbacks trying to push it too far. You can only imagine how painful that injury would be. Uh, Bishop is in double A with Arkansas right now, and Hanniger is with Tacoma. The Mariners don't have to make any moves uh, on the 40 man roster when they activate either of these guys from the injured list because they left two spots open. Um, even after calling up Jake Fraley the other day. Um, we didn't even talk about Jake Fraley in the, the rebuild status check. One of the top prospects in the, in the system made his major league debut yesterday and went 0 for three, hit the ball really hard twice, made a diving catch in center field. Really excited to see what he does over the next week. 
But it's this is going to make for a fascinating final six weeks of the season. Because, first of all, I'm excited, beyond excited, to see the outfield lineup of Braden Bishop in center, Hanniger in right, Jake Fraley in left. That outfield will be one of the better defensive outfields the Mariners have put on the field in years. Maybe since 2001, when you had Cameron and Ichiro holding down center and right, and then whoever they chose to put out and left. But Braden Bishop is an elite center field defender. Uh, Fraley is an outstanding center fielder as well, so in left field, it's going to cover a ton of ground. Hanniger is one of the better defensive right fielders in baseball with one of the better arms in baseball. So that makes you really good defensively. It's also important from this standpoint. Bishop only had about a month under his belt before he got hurt at the major league level was um, performing at a high level at AAA. The question on him has always been his bat, but he was hitting really well in Tacoma, and he was hitting with some power and some extra base power. If Braden Bishop can become a 270-320 type of hitter in center field that'll hit you maybe 10-15 home runs, that's an everyday player. Hanniger I want to see perform just so that we can see that the the first half he was having before he got hurt, there were some struggles there see that he's put that behind him. And then, of course, Fraley needs to get as many at-bats as he can to see how well he adapts to big league pitching. If Bishop and Fraley perform and Hanniger looks good, I think it increases the chances that Hanniger will be traded this offseason. Um... He was the talk of a lot of trade talks last offseason when his value would have been higher because one extra year of control. The Mariners were holding out for massive haul, and I think it was the right thing to do at the time. Hanniger can still, I believe, this offseason is your best bet to get quality, young, starting pitching in return. A guy like John Gray from the Colorado Rockies, who Churchill has talked about a lot as a potential target, or maybe you can revisit the Braves and their need for another outfielder and and tap into their unbelievable depth of high-end starting pitching at the top part of their farm system, guys that are major league ready. Uh, or find another matchup out there that we're not even thinking about. Um, Hanniger's your best chance to do that. Um, to get pitching. You know, when you talk about trading guys like Domingo Santana, I think you just get whatever the market bears. And you try to fill in a position somewhere else where you don't feel you're deep enough. You just take the, the highest upside player or combination of players that you can get. But Hanniger, man, if he gets traded this offseason, I feel like it has to be for pitching. So, would love to see him hit. And would love to see all three of those guys perform at a high level. Because some of that will bode well for the future. Uh, well, it would all bode well for the future. Whether that becomes production on the field in a Mariner uniform or to be traded for pitching. Um, another guy that I've increasingly become willing to accept as ultimate trade bait as his highest value is Omar Narvaez. Had the great first half if catching wasn't as deep as it was in the American League, might have been our all-star representative over Vogelbach. I saw somewhere the other day that, that with some of the defensive metrics, uh, he's dead last in the league in catching. But all I've heard all season long are how much he's improved receiving the ball, blocking the ball, framing pitches, handling, working with working with pitchers. He's a serviceable defensive catcher. In particular, as a left-handed bat as part of a platoon or a guy that you could DH or possibly consider a position change and make a first baseman out of him. Narvaez has struggled the last month or so, but his bat's legit. It was legit in Chicago as a platoon player. It was legit in the first half as the everyday catcher. But I 
I think it's becoming more and more evident lately that Tom Murphy can play every day. Jerry DePoto said as much uh, on his own podcast, The Wheelhouse, about six weeks, two months ago. was talking about Tom Murphy and how when they acquired him, they felt strongly that he was an everyday catcher that just hadn't had a chance to catch every day in Colorado. He can hit, he can hit with power, and he is the far superior defender. And the Mariners have other options as their second catcher. You could go into next season while you wait for Cal Raleigh to develop, for instance. You could go into next season with Tom Murphy as your everyday catcher. And Austin Nola could be your second catcher. Haven't seen him do it much at the major league level because they have Murphy and Narvaez. But from all reports, Nola is a solid, solid catcher. He's also a guy that can play first base play some second base in a pinch. We've seen him do that. He can play some outfield. Extremely versatile. But he became a catcher full-time two years ago, took to it like a fish to water, and can easily be your second catcher. You'd have two right-handers. You know, sometimes you like to have a left-handed bat in there. Um, but I wouldn't nitpick. I think Tom Murphy is a guy. I'd rather see him out there five, six days a week instead of Omar, Omar Narvaez, at least behind the plate. I like Narvaez's bat. He's going to bounce back. And I think there's some trade value there. In fact, uh, I mean, as young and cheap and controllable as he still is, that kind of production, um, I think it's safe to say that you would get more in return for him this offseason than you gave up to get him last year. Remember, they traded Alex Colomay, who was about to get about a 3 or $4 million raise in arbitration as an eighth-inning guy who did some closing for the White Sox this year, but a late-inning reliever making $8 million a year is what you gave up to get Narvaez, I think you can get better than that in return. So, um, gosh, the more Tom Murphy hits, I think the more obvious that that becomes. One other kind of cool thing uh, this weekend, or, well, I say cool, but um, you know, you may have different thoughts on it, but Felix Hernandez is finally ready to get back to T-Mobile Park. He's going to get the start on Saturday. They really took their time bringing him back um, in his rehab stint. In fact, it seemed like there was a little bit of tension there that he thought he was ready two weeks ago. The team wanted him to make a couple more rehab starts. Um, He looked good against Tacoma the other day. I don't think you're going to see anything more than what we saw the first part of the season from Felix, but here's the thing. Every start that he makes now from Saturday and beyond could be his final start ever in a Mariner uniform. So just cherish that and take advantage of it if he's at home. I wish I could go to the ballpark on Saturday and watch him. I just can't. Um, But if you can, you should. Because the days are numbered. And um, no matter how well he pitches... You know, his legacy, and and we'll talk about that another day when it's more pertinent at the end of his career. Um, But his best years were wasted. We know that. And, uh, you know, it's been been tough watching him the last two years. But kind of just stick that aside. And uh, you get to watch Felix pitch on Saturday with Kings Court in session and all of that. Um, Enjoy it while you can. Let's talk about some Seahawks uh, preseason loss to the Vikings. The uh, We saw more starters play, in particular on offense, the first two series. And uh, there's been a lot of focus on the bad news from that game. Um, in particular, how bad the second and third offenses looked. Um, but, man, I think you got to give them a little bit of a break because what we thought was going to be a deeper offensive line unit than we've seen in three or four years has just been ravaged by injuries. Um, At left guard alone, Mike Upati hasn't practiced this entire camp, although it sounds like he's close to coming back. Uh, Phil Haynes, the fourth-round pick out of Wake Forest this year who had the great great OTAs and looked good. Still isn't back yet. May open the season on the pup list. Um, Jamarco Jones and George Fant, the two... Uh, top backups at the two tackle spots who there is so much uh, hope and projection for 
and um, and speculation that that one of or both of these guys could end up being the bookends when Effetti and Brown move on. Um, both have been banged up. Uh, Fluker's been hurt on and off, but he was in there uh, on Sunday. Uh, so the backups just it's really doesn't give the reserve offense much of a chance to succeed. Rashad Penny didn't have a Rashad Penny. I always I need to remind myself there's no R in there. Rashad Penny uh, had nowhere to run. There's been a lot of criticism of his him of his this week. Um, he didn't have anywhere to go. From the second he was touching the ball, almost he was hitting the backfield. But I'm going to focus on the good news from that game because we're going to stay on the offensive line. Those first two series, um, two sixty-plus yard series, might have been the best, most consistent, most dominant pass protection we've seen from a Seahawks offensive line since Pete Carroll arrived in town. I know it's only the preseason, but they were going up against the Vikings, and Everson Griffin was in there, and Danielle Hunter was in there. The Vikings are going to be one of the better defenses in the NFL this year. And the Seahawks offensive line gave Russell Wilson all day long to throw. They opened up a couple running lanes. Chris Carson looked good. Still looks quick, strong, fast. All that looks 100% healthy. The offense looks promising. And maybe the best news of all, and I wrote about this yesterday on Seahawk Maven, but Ethan Posick filling in for Eupati at left guard has been a bit of a revelation. Samuel Gold from The Athletic was on Locked on Seahawks podcast with Corbin Smith yesterday. said he thought he was the best player in the game. Uh, Pro Football Focus graded him very high in the game. Uh, he had the great rookie year. He looked lost last year in Solari's new system. There were questions about his functional strength. Um, he's added 20 pounds. He always had the technical prowess. Um, I mentioned this in the story yesterday, but the day he was drafted, Brock Heward came out. He had, he had seen him play a lot in his role as an analyst for ESPN and said, hey, this is different than the lineman that the Seahawks have been drafting recently. He's not a project. He can play. He knows what he's doing. Um, but he was considered coming into this year because of all that newfound depth, guys that we talked about that maybe he had been passed by by Haynes and that the team like Joey Hunt as the backup center. Maybe Posick didn't have a role. He might be on the bubble. Um, Carroll said this week, wouldn't be afraid to start him. And he may be our left guard moving forward. Eupati had a history of injuries coming to the Seahawks. And since, since we've signed him, he's hardly practiced. So great sign that Posick was able to play that well with that unit. Dwayne Brown looked phenomenal. Jermaine Fetty looked good. Fluker looked good. Britt looked good. That whole unit uh, looks like they're ready to start the season. Um, so that's really all I want to focus on from that game because it's really all that looked good. <laughs> I know I said I would focus only on the good, um, but I think I think it was obvious to everyone also um, the questions about the pass rush are are still significant and prominent. And to try and generate a pass rush, they're blitzing a lot more with their DBs and their linebackers. And I don't know if that's a recipe uh, that's going to work in the regular season because I don't know if the back end, if the DBs are good enough to cover um, when they're left on an island. But I will say this. Uh, I'm going to say it on the record now because it could happen any time between now and September 8th. John Schneider will make a move. He'll make a significant trade, possibly two, um, to get help for that pass rush and that defensive line, even knowing that Ziggy Ansah should be healthy and should be ready week one and that LJ Collier is closer to returning. Schneider's going to make a move. He has a history of making trades late in camp. He's going to acquire someone either, and it may just be someone that he assigns after the cut to 53 league-wide. But typically, his M.O. is he'll identify the guy he wants and make that move before the cut so that he can get in and not risk having that player go to the open market. So keep your eyes out for that. Um, here's three things 
that I want to see the NFL change as soon as possible. And and I've really come around on this first one because I I tend to be, uh, I think, a little bit of a traditionalist. And I like the game to stay... Um, uh, I like to I like it to look like the game that I grew up watching, but I'm ready to get rid of the kickoff. The kickoff needs to go. It's really the the rule changes of the last year or two to try to keep it safer have essentially neutered the entire process. And the fact that um, you know kickers are now just kicking it to the goal line, uh, and there's no return game. There's penalties on almost every return opportunity it's they've essentially they may have made it safer they've also made it worthless and pointless and boring uh we saw a little bit of of it in the aaf over the spring i don't think it really changes the game at all just sticking on the 25 change of possession um after a score you start on the 25 yard line and just go from there Makes it even for everybody and uh, opens up a, a roster spot, possibly, uh, for a player who's more specialized because you don't need to have kickoff returners, um, although you still do have to have punt returners, but um, I don't want to get rid of that. But just get rid of the kickoff. I think it's pointless, and it slows down the game, and uh, it's time. Um, I've also come full circle on this one. There is absolutely no need for four preseason games. I could maybe justify two. But there has been such a global shift league-wide in how the preseason is approached. And even Pete Carroll has changed his ways. We talked about this last week. Didn't play his starters in the first game on offense. Um, played them less in the second game than he usually does. They usually play the, the entire first half. More coaches are coming out this week and saying they're going to treat week three differently. Week three had become the dress rehearsal. The game that you play your starters the entire first half and into the second half. More and more coaches are coming out and saying, not going to do it. Not going to play my guys. Not going to even dress my starting quarterback for the third game. And then the fourth game, be it as it may, that it's four days after the weekend is, is basically for the roster bubble guys anyway. Just uh, knock it down to two. Extend training camp or let them hit a little bit more in training camp. Uh, more teams may do some more of the inter-team scrimmages uh, with other clubs. Knock it down to two. It's it's not necessary. It's senseless. It'll probably have to be part of the next CBA labor agreement talks. But um, it's I used to love watching all the preseason games. Because you saw enough of the starters to get it to get your appetite uh, quenched, and the quality of play seemed better even with the backups in there. But because you can't hit hardly at all in practice now, the games I feel like they could gear training camp up a little bit more, so that maybe you just have those. You have two preseason games, and the first one you play your starters the way that you used to in the third game. And then the last game is meant for roster decisions, and you go from there. And it's also time. Uh, my third thing is they need to make officials full-time. Um, it's the number of flags that I've seen watching some of these preseason games. And some of it may be that they're trying to emphasize stuff. Um or they're confused about how the new replay rules work, and so they're just flagging everything so that they can let the review guys figure it out. I watched um, watched a replay of the Cleveland Browns preseason game yesterday, and we went... It was about 15 minutes worth of game time, and only six plays had been run. There were about six or seven plays in a row where a flag was thrown. The officials need to be full-time. They need to spend the weeks in between games, reviewing film, looking at what was missed, 
and imparting some consistent principles so that all these crews are officiating things and trying to see things the same way. Drilling it into them with repetition, repetition, repetition. Well-officiated games will create a better product on the field. Um, another note I have here, uh, my feelings on the wide receiver group have changed. Uh, Jazz Ferguson looks like a fun toy, but I think we saw it for a second week in a row. John Ursua could be special as a slot guy. He looks like Doug Baldwin 2.0. He looks like he has a knack for finding the open seam, uh, that he runs good routes, catches the ball well, great body control, good run after the catch, would allow Lockett to play outside more instead of having to focus on the slot. I would keep Ursua over Jazz Ferguson at this point. And I think the league kind of knows what Ferguson's limitations are, and I'm starting to think there's a chance that we could get him through to the practice squad. I also said that I liked Paxton Lynch's upside better last week than Geno Smith, and then Lynch looked terrible. Granted, the aforementioned issues with the offensive line were working against him, but he looked indecisive, inaccurate. Geno Smith is back in practice this week. Um, Lynch probably can't play anyway because he took that hit to the helmet. He's in the concussion protocol. I'd be surprised if he's even cleared to play this week. Um, I think Geno Smith needs to play well, though. I think... Uh, after Russell Wilson's finished this Saturday against the Chargers, we need to see Lynch play or uh, Smith play well. He needs to play well in the fourth game. If he doesn't, I wouldn't be surprised if Schneider's out looking once again like he did last year when he picked up Brett Hundley at the very end of training camp with the trade. Uh, if he goes out looking for, let me just put it this way: our backup quarterback week one might be a guy that's not on the roster, um, and and they have to put an end to this cycle. I don't care that you have a franchise quarterback. We have 10 picks in next year's draft. He'll probably trade around anyway and make that even more than that. Use one of them on a quarterback you like that you can develop into a solid backup that can be a backup as a rookie. And then if you really strike gold with him and he becomes a guy that looks like he could be a long-term starter in the league, then you do what New England did and you trade him like they traded Jimmy Garoppolo for a couple of second-round picks. Use a draft pick a fairly high draft pick on a quarterback that has upside. The Patriots did it again this year. What did they use to get Jared Stidham? A fourth? A fifth? Stidham looks great in the preseason. Looks like the next Garoppolo in the next long-term backup and maybe even the successor to Brady because the knock on Stidham was always that he was miscast at Auburn in that offense, but that he projected more as a, as a pro-style guy, and it sure looks that way so far. All right, I, uh, I mentioned this last week. I need your help. Um, every year I buy a, a new jersey, and this year, more than ever, now that Baldwin has retired and Earl Thomas has moved on, the majority of my jerseys now, all of my non-Russell Wilson jerseys are now ex-Seahawks, and I don't have a problem wearing those. During the summertime, my favorite jersey to wear, is I have a sleeveless Richard Sherman, and uh, just bought an action green one uh, because it was on clearance and um, maybe that'll be my go-to next summer. Uh, but I don't know who to get. Um, I'm usually a quarterback guy. The easy answer would be, I don't have a, I don't have a Wilson blue. I have a wolf gray and I have a white Wilson uh, and the white's a little too big. So I could, I could get an action green Wilson or a blue Wilson. I could go that way. I could go Bobby Wagner. Now that he's signed up, he's going to be here long-term. Love the guy. Love Wagner. Um, I would be honored to wear 54 to the games. Tyler Lockett's another dude that I love. Uh, we're about the same size. And uh, just a really exciting player. Great Seahawk. Great in the community. Signed long-term. Chris Carson is another one that I'm considering. Um, and then if I can't decide, I may just take that money this year. And buy the new release of the Nike Seahawks shoes because I don't know if you've seen them, but they're the best ones yet, and they're pretty badass. And I may go that route as well. Um, although my old uh, custom Kobe 8s are still in good shape, uh, they're just not very comfortable. Um, they're a low-top basketball shoe. There's not a lot of... Um, I bought them a little too small. There's not a lot of... Uh, they're just not very comfortable. 
uh, the new one certainly would be. So I put a little quick poll up on Twitter today. I'll uh, be interested to get your feedback on this. But if you haven't figured it out already, I am fully on board with wearing jerseys. I own a shit ton of jerseys. I still have a bunch of old classic ones. Um, I was excited to see that the NFL finally expanded the throwback line. Uh, a couple years ago, the only throwback Seahawks jersey you could get was Largent. Then they brought out Walter Jones. This year, uh, there's Easley. There's Cortez Kennedy. There's Jim Zorn, thankfully. Um, I may have to get a Zorn. Um, by the way, just side note, uh, Erica and I were having breakfast the other day at Little John's in Bellevue, and a guy came up to the table, and he said, Hey, excuse me, is that a Steve Largent? tattoo on your forearm I said yes it is and he said oh hi my name I can't remember his name I feel like an ass uh I'm Jim Zorn's son-in-law and uh I uh, just went hunting with Steve recently he would love that tattoo so I thought that was a pretty cool uh pretty cool little thing uh but I could could go throwback as well but I love wearing jerseys and there are guys out there a lot of them uh the one that comes to mind is Ian Furness is always pounding away at this guy on KJR. If you're over the age of 30, you shouldn't wear a jersey. A lot of the sports radio guys feel that way. Uh, I've seen national guys talk like that. Screw you is is my take on that. I'll wear what I want to wear. And oh, by the way, we're there to support the team. It's a tradition in hockey. You see it in baseball stadiums. I'll wear whatever the hell I want to wear and whoever's name I want to wear on the back of my jersey. Uh, Chris D'Elia is another guy that uh, I love everything about Chris D'Elia as a stand-up comic, podcaster. He's one of the funniest dudes out there. Uh, but it makes me cringe when I hear his take on sports fans and uh, and wearing jerseys. Um, uh, particularly what he says about if you're wearing a Wayne Gretzky jersey. So I'll just leave it at that. Um because it's a family show. Last week, um, I mentioned that I thought, uh, kind of contrary to most public opinion, that Anthony Gordon was going to win the quarterback job at WSU over Gage Gubrud. A lot of people just assumed it would be Gubrud, and I think some of that is just perception, and it's the unknown, and we don't know Anthony Gordon because we didn't watch the City College of San Francisco play three years ago when they won the national title, and we don't go to Pullman to watch practices, and we haven't seen him in games because um, I think Tinsley actually took more snaps last year in reserve of Minshew than Gordon did, uh, and Gubrud put up a bunch of big numbers at Eastern, and he beat the Cougs in Pullman a couple years ago, and, and all of that, and oh, they remember how Minshew transferred in as a grad transfer last year, so why not Why not go with that guy again? Lightning in a bottle. Strikes twice, right? But Gordon just has had the better camp. And this week, it appears that I'm right. Um, Gordon has gotten, according to reports, three-quarters of all the snaps in practice, as many as 80% of the snaps in practice this week, over Gubrud. I think that's telling. And then the biggest thing is Mike Leach was at, asked point blank, and he said if we were playing a game today, Anthony Gordon would get the start. Um, if you're freaking out about that because you think Gubrud should be the guy, I'll simply say this. A, who do you trust more than Mike Leach to make this decision? He had a real run at Texas Tech after Graham Harrell left of guys who were fifth-year seniors getting one shot to start and putting up massive numbers. Sonny Cumbie is a good good example of that. Um, I trust Mike Leach to make the right decision. And if he sees something in Anthony Gordon to make him the starter over Gubrud, then, then I'm going to believe that Anthony Gordon is the right guy. Also, just know that the depth right now at the quarterback position in Pullman is insanely good if Gordon falters doesn't play well um, the situation's too big for him or he gets hurt having Gubrud as your backup quarterback with all of his experience and and how prolific he was at Eastern not a bad problem to have 
having Trey Tinsley as your third quarterback who's been in the system for three years and going into camp was in a three-way race for the starting position, not a bad problem to have. Having your fourth-string quarterback be Cam Cooper, who was a four-star recruit, redshirted as a freshman last year, is is presumed to be the guy next year, not a bad problem to have. And then, oh, by the way, your fifth quarterback is Gunnar Cruz, who is a freshman recruit this year and a four-star who they're going to redshirt, but ultimately may end up overtaking Cooper. Uh, that's going to be quite the battle next year. So crazy depth there. Um, they've got a couple of kind of easy non-conference games to work it out, but uh, don't be surprised if Gordon um, you know, takes the ball and runs with it and has a good year, has a Minshew-type year. A couple other WSU notes. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the news, but HBO is doing kind of a Hard Knocks-style behind-the-scenes series this year, and they announced that WSU will be one of the teams featured. Um, it won't be like Hard Knocks in the sense that it focuses on only one organization. They're focusing on four, but one of the four is Alabama, and one of them is WSU. So I can't wait to see, you know, getting behind the scenes and, and uh, behind the curtain with Mike Leach is always an entertaining thing. Uh, some Coug fans may cringe and be a little scared of that. Like, oh, they're going to find out what a nut job our head coach is. I don't care about that. Um, he's our nut job. And I think that that exposure that we're about to get on HBO um, can only help in recruiting. And maybe we'll start getting some five-star guys. And there's a five-star recruit right now, one of the, the top recruits in the nation who just announced his final six schools. And WSU is on that list. Savelle Smalls, outside linebacker from Kennedy Catholic. You may have heard of him. He is a legit five-star recruit. The biggest get in the state of Washington. His final six are Oregon, Tennessee, Florida State, Alabama, UW, and WSU. The UW thing's interesting. He took them off of his top 10, but put them back on his top six. You can brush this off and you can think they don't have a chance. They don't have a chance. But here's why they might. Because WSU has one thing to offer that none of those other five schools are offering. This kid wants to play on offense, too. At first, I heard it was running back, but the latest report I saw is that he would play receiver. He's 6'3", 227. He would play outside receiver in the air raid. And the Cougs are offering him that. They're saying, if you sign with us, we will allow you to play on both sides of the ball. We'll see how important that ends up being uh, to this to this kid. I, I think it's obviously it's still a long shot. But the fact he is in the top six, uh, we are in the top six, and that we're the only school offering him that opportunity. You just don't know, do you? Let's wait and see. And my final thought this week, uh, the XFL finally, finally announced the team names and unveiled the logos for the eight XFL teams. And we are the Seattle Dragons. The logo looks badass. I love the nickname. Um... There was a lot of criticism of the nickname. Nobody ever loves these things. When the NHL team names themselves finally in a month or two, there are going to be detractors and people that just hate the direction that they took. Here's why I love the Dragons. And if you haven't already, go online and look at the video they put together to, to announce this. It's really well done. While the XFL isn't going to be as bombastic and over the top as it was the first time it tried to launch because they went too far. And it became sort of a caricature. It's it's still supposed to be more fun. Some people have speculated the league's never come, come out and said what XFL stands for. Some have said the X is for extreme, like the X Games. Um, or the Extra Fun League. But either way, they're trying to stand out and be more entertaining. These names... Are fun. The Renegades. I like Seattle Dragons. I like them a lot. Um, and I can't wait to get some merch. 
here's the thing. I'm excited about the XFL as a whole. Um, Buddy and I even talked about putting deposits down on season tickets. I don't know if we're going to do that simply because the downside of a spring league and having a franchise in Seattle is you're starting play in February. Remember what the weather was like last February? <laughs> what the weather is usually like in February? Not a lot of fun to see an outdoor football game. So what we'll likely do the first season or two, um, and I do think they'll make it three seasons minimum because Vince McMahon has that money set aside and is guaranteed three, thesi- three seasons, and I think they'll make that happen. I think what we'll do is, hey, the Dragons are playing a home game this week. The forecast looks decent. Let's go to a game. But here's what I think they have to do to last beyond three seasons and to last as a whole, as a league, but in particular for the franchise in Seattle to succeed. Is I think they have to have enough players on their roster that have local ties that immediately spark interest in the local football fan. And the biggest one is at the quarterback position. And there's a couple of options. We know that Jake Heaps, former BYU quarterback, but from this area, was the number one quarterback recruit in the country coming out of high school, chose BYU over UW, and then played, uh, spent training camp with the Seahawks a couple years ago. Now he does some local radio, and he helps Russell Wilson, uh, works for Russell Wilson uh, doing his his quarterback camps. Keith Price, the former Husky starter, um, those two have been invited to take part in the draft. So there's a good chance one or both of them uh, will end up with the XFL team. But here's a couple other ideas. What about Paxton Lynch? Granted, he hasn't been a Seahawk for that long, but he's a really interesting player. First-round draft pick just three years ago. The commissioner of the XFL, Oliver Luck, has even come out and said whoever loses the quarterback, uh, the backup quarterback battle in Seattle is going to be of interest to their league. Paxton Lynch would be interesting. How about Luke Falk? He's currently battling for the third or fourth spot in uh, New York with the Jets. Don't know how many quarterbacks they're going to keep. Um, spent last year with the Miami Dolphins, but he's he's that type of fringe NFL young player that the XFL might make a lot of sense for because you could go be on someone's practice squad and make $80,000 and not get very many reps in practice and never get into a game, or you can go to the XFL and make six figures. I think they've said they're willing to pay their quarterbacks up to 250 a year, and you can play every day. And you can get those reps and you can build tape for yourself. Jake Browning is in that same situation. Signed as an undrafted free agent with the Vikings this year. Uh, Signed for a higher guaranteed dollar amount than most undrafted rookies get. But he's fourth on that depth chart. We didn't see him in the Seahawks game. So he may be a free agent. And in the same boat as Luke Falk. I think that would generate a lot of interest locally. I think Browning certainly would generate more interest than Falk. Uh, Running back James Williams was just uh, caught over 70 passes for the last two years for the Cougs. Uh, Came out early. uh, Was signed by the Kansas City Chiefs. They cut him before camp started. He was just signed by the Colts the other day and released 36 hours later. He'd be interesting. And then look at the bottom of the depth chart of the Seahawks wide receiver group. How about guys like Amara Darbo, Keenan Reynolds, Malik Turner? Darbo was a third-round pick. Reynolds and Turner have been uh, kind of the standouts of camp and on the practice squad the last couple years. But they just haven't had a chance to consistently prove themselves. Some of those guys that played in the AAF, even if it was only for eight or nine games, made an impression and got invited to NFL camps where they otherwise wouldn't have. So the exposure helps. I think they should focus on local players. But anyway, I'm excited about the Dragons. I'm excited about the XFL. I mean, it's February. You know, what do you what else are you going to do in February and March? I know that, you know, in 2 years we'll have hockey to watch. But you know, the NFL offseason is really the most 
interesting thing in February. And then pitchers and catchers report at the end of the month. So I hope it works, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing some games. That's going to do it. Uh, I know we packed a lot into that episode, um, but there's a lot going on. So uh, if it's your first time listening, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Please hit subscribe so you get notifications when there are new episodes. We do this once a week here on The Dan Cave. You can email me at thedancaveshow at gmail.com. Please follow me on Twitter if you're not already, at SeahawksForever. My name's Dan Viennes. This is The Dan Cave. Thank you again for listening, and as always... Go Seahawks, go Mariners, go Cougs.